Hello and welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where my friend and I examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular and niche RPGs. It's like a book club with a robot that pilots a robot that pilots a robot. This is season one, and we're talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. My name is Tyler. And I'm Video Games. We invite you to join this adventure by playing Xenoblade alongside us uh, as we play it chapter by chapter. This episode, we are wrapping up chapter 14, where we explore Agniritha, the Mechanist capital. Nate, what's one thing in our podcast title that we've seen literally zero of this entire Xenoblade playthrough? Oh, right. I am Nate. Yeah. Um, Also, potions? Potions. No potions in this game. They don't really concoct anything. Everything is just ether, whether they suck it down via green liquid to destroy their own cellular structure or they turn it into a giant sword. It's all ether. Everything goes with ether. In our battles, there aren't really consumables that you can use. You, you, don't, you don't apply attrition through currency spent at shops to spend money and items that are consumable in battle. There's none of that in this game. We chose the name of this podcast poorly, I, I believe. I think that's what I'm getting at, yeah. Big picture, I do see in basically every other role-playing um, avenue, whether it's tabletop, video game, or even popular fantasy TV shows like The Witcher, there's a lot of potion drinking going on. So I think don't think we're completely off base there. Don't count us out yet. We may yet run into a potion in our travels. Yes. Nate, how was your Labor Day weekend? It was good. We went to a uh, water park. And because we have a two-year-old, we, we didn't do a whole lot of like big slide stuff. We just kind of hung out in the wave pool. We floated down the lazy river, which he was a little apprehensive about at first, but uh, he eventually started loving it. And just as he was enjoying it, there was like some sort of on the other side of the river, like somebody got hurt or turned the wrong way or something because all the lifeguards were screaming at everyone to get out of the (laughs) pool. So, uh, yeah, that was... uh, that was all right, but we had a good time. Um, it was good to get out of our humdrum, mundane routines and get out of town. I know the feeling, man. Um, Friday night, I went to a wedding, and that was really great. Saturday, my wife and I drove 12 hours to go to Oklahoma, pick up a puppy, and drive back. We did basically 24 hours in the car, slept all Sunday afternoon, and then Monday, Labor Day proper, we went out with my wife's family to a lake and hung out at the beach. And uh, my father-in-law has a motorboat and he's got this um, big raft that's like tied to the back and you kind of go, you know, surfing on this on this tube as he like whips you around. And I had never done that before in my life and that was a whole bunch of fun. So I had a pretty action-packed weekend, personally. Water weekend. Water world. Yeah. Yeah. Driving, 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 driving. My God, Nate, how are we going to cover the rest of this chapter? I feel like every other line of dialogue we could spend 10 minutes on. I'm going to let you just just play the whole thing verbatim from beginning to end, <laughs> and we will go play uh, Wrath of the Lich King Classic instead. How's that sound? That sounds like it's a lot easier. Yeah, but that's not what we're here for. And 
It was a good idea to cut up this chapter because so much happens in this chapter. Of course, last episode, we went through all of the Makanis Central Factory, and now that we popped our head into Agniritha, the Makanis capital, um, we have a whole nother zone to explore with plenty of lore to go along. This is a dialogue-rich, cutscene-rich second half of the chapter that we are going to plow through right here, right now. Except we're not going to plow through it right away because I have a couple things to mention about last episode first. First. Lay it on me. So we talked about Agnaratha, the name, and you brought up the Agni reference. I also remembered that there was a King Agni's tomb in Machna Forest. Oh my god, you're right. Yeah, there wasn't really anything to do, but then we were chatting with some people in our Discord about running up and down Frontier Village endlessly talking to people over and over, and so I decided to do just that, and that gave me a quest to go to King Agni's tomb and open it up. Um, I explore it. You have to do a quest to find it and then go back to Frontier Village and do another quest to open the chest that was sitting right in front of you the first time you found it. So both times you have to kill a big elite in order to finish the quest. Pretty stupid design there. But hey, I did it. And it's all flowing into things we talked about last episode. I was saying we haven't gotten new Monado powers in a while and I'm kind of disappointed about that. Well, in that tomb in the chest was a new Monado power. I ended up getting two Monado powers this chapter. I forget which one is which, but one of them is a slowdown of damage in order to boost your own defense. And then the other is a bleed application you can put on the enemy, if I'm remembering that correct. I just got them as, you know, we were wrapping up things here today. So if I'm wrong about that, I'll probably fix it by next chapter. But anyway. Oh my god, I don't have either of those abilities. Okay, yeah. So you next time you're feeling like running up and down Frontier Village, you can go grab that one. <laughs> But <laughs> do I really? There's some uh, there's some lore lore implications here because the end of the quest line we're told that this was the tomb of the ancient race of giants. We've talked about giants a little bit. There was slight reference in Satoru Marsh. We know that Zanza is a giant esque person. We found a big giant tomb thing also in Valak Mountain. So we're getting this idea that Zanza, a giant, made the Monado power sword thing. We now have a tomb of a giant who has Monado abilities that he can unlock based on the like records you find in his tomb. So one thing I'm wondering is for these beings to have info on Monado powers and all that, it seems that the Monado may predate Zanza to some degree because other giants who died and were not sealed up in a giant circular prison thing have experimented with or wielded a version of it prior to him. Like a people that predate Zanza even have Monado info to give. So that's a little bit of cracking an egg of mystery open for me um, on, on finding that tomb and what that implicates there. Certainly. I did visit the tomb and do remember having quests there, but I don't think I completed the whole line. I'm going to have to get back there and 
figure that out. And then the only other thing I have to say is that um, I did go back to find that mass-produced face you found in the previous chapter. Well, same chapter, previous episode. Yes. And he was just hanging from the ceiling, and I guess I was so high level that he did not anger to me, so he's just hanging up there. I ran under him, didn't see him, and he didn't do anything about it. So that is why I did not encounter mass-produced face in the last episode. The ones in this new area we get to in Agnaratha are not that level and they aggro to me every time so I've collected many bloodstained faces now. Many a bloodstained face. We are a collector of bloodstained faces. We are the saviors of Bionis yet we have Nate, uh, did we decapitate these people in advance, or did they come decapitated every time? I don't know. The question I have is, whose blood is it? Ya mom? Ya dad? Maybe that special someone! To quote Mumkar again, we're bringing him back. But the giant stuff gave me some new theories. Yes. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save it until after we digest a little bit more of the lore bombs coming here so that the theories themselves make a little more sense. Nate, I have a episode title to, to, to bounce off you right now, kind of like you do for me every now and then. Okay, let's go. It's shrine time. <laughs> yes, that's a pretty good one. I like it. Thanks. I think we'll get there. We'll see it, but I definitely think Ryan Stole Your Girl is the one for this chapter for me. 110% and holds the moral high ground, too. We'll get to it. Yeah. Good God. <sighs> All right. Should we... I'm, I'm anxious to plunge into this. There's so much. There's so much, Nate. Yes. So where we left off, now that we've done a little bit of recap, a little bit of follow-up, we we just pulled into Agnaratha when uh, we wrapped up the last chapter. Right, we're in Makanos' head now. Agnaratha looks very much like the central factory and its environment. There are yet more utility walkways that hang above, in this case, a blue sky. We can see wisps of clouds below. As I navigate the first area, I can see a giant tower in the center taking the rough shape of the Zohar-adjacent pendant on Elvis's neck. Although its colors are a mix of dull metals instead of Monado red, there are petrified Telethia corpses uh, scattered around the ground. They're granite-looking. Ricky recognizes them as Dino Beasts! And according to Venea, they died in an ancient battle, and they just remained there, fossilized. It's interesting because we may have seen Telethia that looked like this, but they're more humanoid than the giant dragon-like forms we're used to, or maybe Hydra-like forms we're used to. They do look different. Yeah, these ones kind of remind me of maybe the alien Xenomorph. A little bit more the size of a regular human, a little bit more the body of what we would expect. Uh, somebody stand up on two legs, swipe with their hands. Right. Vinaya is still with us, and she's kind of our tour guide through this area. The gang gets into discussion about why are there Telethia corpses here, and uh, Vinaya says, well, they attacked Makanis a long time ago, and then we start scratching her head and saying, well, wasn't it just Bionis that attacked Makanis? And Vinaya says, well, there's more to the legendary Titan battle than we know, and we will learn the truth if we visit the data center, which is inside that central tower, that Zohar-looking structure. What are we going to learn in there? Something about Zanza, Lady Maynith, Shulk, Duplicate Shulk, Egil. Uh, it seems like all the answers are here in front of us, or lots of answers are here in front of us. 
this little segment here where she says they're remnants of an old battle 10,000 years ago or something like that, that's a little bit of a gripe of mine from the fantasy genre where something important happens 10,000 years ago and then nothing important happens for the next 10,000 years and then again everything important is happening. Right here, right now. Yeah, right on the dot. They're like, all right, we're officially five digits in here on the years. Let's move this along. I'm, I'm getting sick of this shit. Uh, Warcraft is also a glaring culprit of this trope and an annoyance to me where an ancient battle happened 10,000 years ago and... The current game takes place, like the first game to the third Warcraft game take place over roughly like 15 years and then there's another 10 years for the MMO. And it's like, so you're telling me after 10,000 years, all at once within a span of 25 years, every threat that's ever existed said like, okay, now's the time to play our cards. Let's go. I'm I'm running out of time here. It's like, what, what were you all doing for the last eternity, you know? Like, if you show me a picture of where I grew up 75 years ago, it's unintelligible. You don't even recognize the town whatsoever. And that's what I expect of the passage of time. Not that a Telethia died on the floor and everybody's like, let's just leave them there forever. Yeah, they didn't clean them up. They left them here for us to discover and marvel at and inspire a conversation from our Machina guide. Also... In the distance here, I can see the forge or the shrine or the statue that Agil monologued in front of at the beginning of the chapter. We're going to find out later that this is the Mainith Shrine. One thing I'll say um, about Agnarotha is when you arrive here at night, the music here is sad and haunting, but with the presence of like an uplifting angelic melody being sung along with it, being brought to a place of like empathy with my enemy as that's been a growing theme throughout our journey in Makanis. We're not just like murdering and feeling antagonistic vibes the entire time. I'm so glad you mentioned that because this environment, we just plowed through two zones of hostile mechanical environments and here we are at a third mechanical environment and the environmental archetype that we're in is not more mechanical death zone this is like the broken city but we can relate to it in the same sort of way because we are homs we belong on bionis this is their variation of it and the music is exactly as you described it it's it sounds like a candle of hope in the darkness the tone is is very different now that we're in the heart of well so to speak the heart of bionis now we're in the the eye of the storm let's say that Things are feeling a little more peaceful still and not exactly what we thought it would be. Indeed. Although it is filled with mechanical terrors. We walk a couple walkways to get to the data center. There is an invisible wall left of the data center that literally prompts me with the message, you must go to the data center. Authentic invisible wall steering me towards the data center. Fine. Fine, I'll go to the data center. The data center base floor has six terminals with quests floating above each one. And there's a seventh shop terminal. I can't really afford anything there at the moment. I don't know what happened to my budget in this game, but I just can't afford stuff anymore. And I'm selling things. I don't I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the upgrades of Colony 6 is eating through all my money. Mm. But yeah. When I leave, the terminal says, terminal always open for business, referring to itself 
itself in the third person. Like it was programmed by a Nopon. Always open for business. I kind of figured like these terminals were going to trigger cutscenes or that these were like quests of you have to see this cutscene or that cutscene or something but they're just the like obligatory kill quests that you get for each zone doled out this time by mindless automatons instead of like, your typical nopon greeting party here's an interesting fact that i uh, observed about them though they even give the excuse that unbalanced power is undesirable where have we heard that before tyler Communism. No. Other no pawn. Oh, really? Yeah, remember in Valak, the the excuse for the no pawn oh, to yes. kill the life was the ecological balance of life forms? Ecological balance, yes. Yeah, so either these little floaty automaton robots are Mechanis' version of no pawn, or the, um, the no pawn made these in a time before time they were these automatons were planted here by nopon their influences everywhere mechanis even has teleporters that take me to the nopon arc sage a being concerned only with creating scenarios for me to commit violence and then grading the efficiency of said violence i think i'm on to something big here i'm terrified to follow your theory all the way to the end yeah i think Prior, we, we have these two forces fighting. Bionis, Mechanis, locked in an eternal struggle, but everything points to us one prime race predating them all that loves battle. <laughs> we were all created by violence loving plush toys to endlessly do battle on giant Gundams. We're gonna find out. Hey, you know. We're going to get to the end of the game eventually, and you will have your answers. Yeah, that's my prime theory. I'm over the Dixon is Zanza theory, and this is now it. It's that Nopon created everything to watch a gladiatorial struggle for eternity. Holy smokes. Okay, um, an eighth terminal says it will give us a key for a special view from the top if we complete all quests. So that's good incentive to complete these quests. And so I do. Nate, did you crush every single quest like I did? I crushed every single quest, so. Before we go questing, well, we can't go questing yet. We pick up the quests. We have to go to the central tower. In the hallway just past those automatons, we go up a, an elevator to the, let's say the top or like the central, central part of the central tower. There are two, quote, observation doors on either side. Those are the locked doors that we will unlock when we complete all of those quests. And at the end of the hallway, the data center. Holy shit, we learn so much in this cutscene here. Um, Fiora gasps and Lady Maineth takes over. She puts her hand on a holographic terminal and loads a large golden holographic replica of Agniritha in front of the entire circular room. Shulk and Rhine discover the magic of holograms for the first time we watch them learn that you can display an image in front of somebody that they can't actually touch it looks like it's here but it's just an image no way whoa you're right they're floored by it shocked by it lady Maina speaking through fiora says these are memories left behind by the machina before they abandoned this place so that others like us may know their story and so she tells the story in ancient times when they came into existence 
I assume she means the Titans. Maynith was born as well. Then she says, just as Bionis had a soul, I came to exist in this world. Maynith equals Makanis' soul confirmed. As the soul of Makanis, I created my children and inquired, quote, this body, although I know that this body doesn't mean actually this body because she only got Fiora's body recently. That's a little baffling. They called themselves Machina and Agnaratha brimmed with life. I was equally confused by that statement because the camera work is uh, not good in that moment. When she says this body, they cut to a specific image of Fiora clasping the little triangle thing on her chest. Is that her body? The little oh, interesting node <laughs> stuck to Fiora? I don't think so at all because we have statues and images of Maynith everywhere and we pretty much know she had a body at some point. So this is a little misleading and confusing to show Fiora and to show Fiora like touching herself in that instance where she specifically uses the word this body. Maybe it was a translation muck up. Maybe, yeah. Maynith continues, they say Machina gave Zanza and Hyentia technology and believed their worlds would grow hand in hand. But I know, this is Tyler speaking, but I know that that's not really how people live. Usually we are kind of like in opposition to the people that are different from us, but not according to this mythology. I wonder, did Zanza make the Monado with Machina technology and then betrayed them? She says that they brought forth prosperity and shared their gifts. So we do know that there's a lot of machine stuff on Bionis and we've commented on that in the past when we look at like Colony 9, Colony 6, their little mech robots they use to do labor for them, their ether collection plants or facilities that are embedded in the mountainside, the giant drill harvesting ether from Colony 6, that's all machinery. So was this a bunch of stuff shared by Mechanis to Bionis seems a little intrusive and not conducive to the lifestyle and ways of Bionis if it was a completely natural entity prior to that intervention. Makes you wonder if the technology sharing is sort of helping Bionis dig its own grave like a um a manufactured consent campaign of espionage for them to undo themselves. But I do know that 10,000 years ago, she's telling us that they were getting along as well as they can. And they said that Bionis 2 brought forth life. So she characterizes the beings that live on Mechanis as life, not necessarily machinery. And there's a lot of talk about ether is the source of all life previous to this and after this in this chapter as well. We also see images in this flashback of like Hams looking or human looking babies in like mechanical pods. So it's like, is there a regular ass biological being being put in a pod and being converted into a mechanical life form? Because it says that the Mechanis brought forth the Machina as its version of life, but why do they spend a significant portion of their life in a pod looking like a Ham until a undisclosed amount of time they come out looking like a robot version of a hom. That wasn't how I read that scene. What is, what is the baby pod then? I think that was Shulk himself. Shulk was in a baby pod on Mechanis? 10,000 years ago, yeah. Well, that's, that's a whole nother... <laughs> rabbit hole to dive down to that I don't have the information to do that dive. I don't have the theories or anywhere to go with that. I know, but like this, this baby in that pod in that micro flashback is a white male hom with 
shaggy blonde hair. Yes, absolutely. What the ever living fuck? It's almost like there are two threads going here. There's the narrative, or the, I say the narrative thread, like the vocal thread of what's being explained to us. But then the director has a completely different set of goals of what he's trying to reveal to us visually. And it's almost like our characters or the speaker are not reacting to, like if this vision, if this flashback was being shown via holograms, as we're led to believe by the people reacting in the room that they are digesting this information, why did nobody digest the information of a shulk pod? (laughs) <laughs> that's that's what I'm struggling with. Like, why did nobody say, wait, that's a palm baby in a me- mechanical pot? I don't know. That's that's where I'm losing it here. Everybody watching this holographic replay does not re- react to the shaggy blonde haired baby in the mechanical floating crib. And we've seen those mechanical floating cribs elsewhere in the fallen arm. So I might just be down a rabbit trail that doesn't exist. But I wonder, why is that the developmental stage of Machina people is to live inside a bubble? I don't know. What's going on inside that bubble? Great question, Nate. I couldn't tell you. Is it the Machina version of a womb where they get to like actually hang out and be a person inside a womb for 13 additional years? I thought it was just a bassinet that the baby Machina could control, but the womb theory is a good theory. Also, though, you can talk to them. I I don't know any baby that's in a bassinet that is asking you to solve their parents' relationship issues. Maybe it's a larval stage of the vehicle that Mikol lives in. That's a good one. Mikol is a weird fucking shape dude. He is not your typical Machina guy. Everybody complains about games like Final Fantasy 13 having their little data center, information center thing in the menu system but this is a moment where I really want to go into some menu system somewhere and answer these questions. Lady made this commentary during this shot of what could be Baby Shulk or maybe just whatever is then something terrible descended upon us from above and we start witnessing images of Bionis slashing at... Mechanus. Bionis is attempting to destroy the Machina. This means that Lady Maynith, or at least this record recording that we're watching, is suggesting that Bionis was the instigator to the fight that neutralized the two of them. Where did these weapons come from if things were so peaceful? It says, wielding the sword of light. A sword of light. We see it pierce the Mechanus. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a break for one more theory here, right? We don't see... Bionis wielding a giant Monado. We see the Bionis wielding a giant sword of light, and then our party reacts to say, the Monado? Yeah, yeah, they do. So the true heir to the Monado, the tr- your Monado, Shulk, not not the one you're currently holding, the, the Alvis voice saying, you need your Monado, right? Mm-hmm. I think that what we have on our back is a mechanically engineered machine meant to trap the giant sword, the the limitless energy Monado, the true Monado, the Monado that belongs to whoever it's supposed to belong to, somehow was... Um, we. Th- this isn't the instigating event in the war, and Maynith refers to Zanza as the instigator, and he's wielding this giant light sword. but at some point, I think that there was a device, like, 
designed to reallocate those energies or like recontextualize the Monado's power in, in a form that was wieldable by somebody that it shouldn't be wielded by because like for example Dunbin trying to wield the Monado gave him significant issues right mm-hmm. so we know that mortals regular people aren't supposed to have this power but there is a device that's trying to make that a reality and that is the Monado we use that we see i think that shulk's true epic Monado that belongs to him is just a giant beam of light it, it's not the red thing at all i think that that red trapping is zanza's creation brilliant idea i like that lady Maeth continues she says she tried to save the machina confronted by Giannis, confronted zanza we see images of machina fleeing agniritha they're being attacked by telethia the telethia sees baby shulk and take him to Bionis. Coming back to that one theory there, but we'll keep moving here. So, um, but when the two titans neutralize one another, the image of the Monado shrunk in Bionis's hand, and then we see that the High Antias are imprisoning Zanza. And so, I'm putting it together in my head. Zanza's proper mission: he wants to reclaim control of Bionis, become Bionis's soul again, in the same way that. Maynith is the soul of Mechanus. And then she says she put herself into a long, deep slumber awaiting Zanza's inevitable awakening. The hologram shuts off, and Lady Maynith says she wants us to stop the battle between the two. We know that Prison Island was at Bionis's head, right? Mm. Also, Prison Island does not look like anything else in the area or like a architectural structure developed by peoples that we've met or interacted with their other architectural structures of any kind, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is Prison Island where one would be if they were inside the... I don't know if you like brain is the right word, but like that shard of whatever the hell that is, could that have previously been inside the Bionis and it was removed and the person occupying it placed in chains? Oh, interesting like is that our brain of bionis you know we might have to go back there and check it out there were those funny teleporters all over the place that were inactive when we were originally there we are going to go back there at some point because there was so much remember when i said it's like this place is i I used the joke i said non-tent it was a lot of like designed plotted out areas that we just didn't interact with or do anything to mm-hmm. that area and then the bionis third lung are going to be revisited in some capacity so i don't know but yeah that that final scene is a image of Sansa being pissed that he was being sealed away now all implications from these cutscenes and Maynith's account of events is that Zanza is the soul of bionis right they they aren't implying or saying anything differently and then we know that Shulk is the true heir of the Monado, perhaps his surrogate in some manner. Lastly, Maynith warned, at least in the cutscene, we see that Maynith warned her people that Zanza would one day reawaken and that they should be prepared. Mm-hmm. Vinaya steps in and says that she input Maynith's body into Fiora as a means to produce a truce between Mechanus and Bionis. So Fiora goes, well, why me? Well, well, because you are close to Shulk, who is the heir to the Monado. So this is sort of like, well, you have compassion for Fiora, and so if Fiora is going to be responsible for Mechanus, and if you are, you know, slowly walking the path to become responsible for all of Bionis, maybe through your love for one another, you will decline to to um, reignite the fight if it really came to that. 
There's another connection here that's possible. I just thought of it uh, because we're talking about Baby Shulk, right? So she said that the the way to like bring the two opposing forces together was step one: they put the soul of a Mechanis soul into a Homs person, right? Mm-hmm. So is Shulk the opposition of that? Is Shulk a Bionis soul put in the body of a Machina? That for whatever reason we perceive them as a Homs or they've been converted into a Homs via a baby pod or something. I don't know. But like possibly crisscrossing that and trying to answer that question, why do we keep seeing Baby Shulk in Mechanis? It's kind of a stretch to me of her saying, Well, I put Maynith in Fiora because then you would care about her. It's like that is one of Shulk's like impetuses for change that we see to the point where he wasn't even willing to kill Mumkar. But that's a pretty big stretch because there's a lot of events that had to line up perfectly all the, going all the way back to the uh, sacking of Colony 9 for that to actually happen. Like, you have to find one of Shulk's friends who gets pretty much murdered but not completely and then resurrect her. And you have to like, it probably needs to be a woman and Shulk probably needs to have a romantic connection with them to some degree. So there's a lot of stars that need to be in alignment for this plan to work out on her end. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I can believe that Venea might have upset Eggle's plans by putting the soul transfer into Fiora without his knowing, but I have trouble believing that Venea had advanced knowledge that Vene- that Fiora was very close to Shulk and that that would snowball into the situation we're at presently. If I'm being generous, we can give the benefit benefit of the doubt to maybe she's just kind of winging it coming up with these solutions on the fly because that is a big suspension of disbelief that you have to give the game xeno gears is the idea that a lot of people's plans are changing on the fly because if you go with the idea that some of the antagonistic forces in xeno gears that they're operating at a level of this was their plan the whole time it quickly falls apart but they, they go to efforts to kind of communicate that. What's the Council of TVs? The Soul 9000, the Gazel Munist. The Gazel Ministry. Yeah, exactly. The Gazel Ministry. They are a prime example of somebody who is changing their plans on the fly because they just constantly in course correction. They're constantly wrong. That's what I love about those guys. They're so menacing and mechanical and deathly, but they are. They totally misunderstand the prophecy. This is neither here nor there. We got enough prophecies to contend with in the game we're already playing. I'm just saying that, you know, we can we can give Vanilla the benefit of the doubt because this has been a direction that this uh, these creators have written characters before. Final few lines from this scene, Vinayas says that the Monado is the light within each and every person in this world. It is the will to survive. In Xenogears, when we're talking about what means what and we're drawing the connections to the cause and effects of people and events and things, it is this enormous red yarn map that is extremely complicated. Pepe Sylvia, this name keeps coming up over and over again. Every day, Pepe's mail's getting sent back to me. Pepe Sylvia, Pepe Sylvia. I look at the mail, well, this whole box is Pepe Sylvia! But for Xenoblade Chronicles, I feel like the equivalent map is going to be an equal sign where Shulk equals the Monado equals Zanza equals Ether equals Telethias equals um, the living will of all of all things that live on Bionis equals the next thing. So I start marching my way down to Carol and HR, and I knock on her door and I say, Carol, Carol, I gotta talk to you about 
everything equals everything, or at least half of everything. If I'm correct, isn't that kind of like if we look into the Jewish Jewish mysticism that inspires this, the path of Sephiroth, all the kind of uh, lore that has been woven through all of these Xeno games. That is kind of the idea is that all of all life, all humanity, all consciousness, spiritualism, like it's a tree that branches out into several different existences, but the roots all go to one place, which is the the higher consciousness, the oneness, and the final plane being one singular powerful spiritual entity that exists in all of us. It is us, but it is everything else as well at the same time. And I think Zeno Gears gets into that a little bit too with um what uh what's his name? The the big face at the end of the game. Krellian? Yeah, Krellian. Like the state that Krellian attains at the end of the game is essentially this thing is this oneness that permeates everything. Oneness with God, yes. You're you're saying that like this game in a way has simplified down that red string map, but I think it's doing a little bit better of a job laying the philosophy out front instead of doing a giant lore dump at the very end. I think they're kind of they're sp- they're sowing the seeds of that philosophy more gradually throughout the game as it progresses in this one to where it's not as jarring for me this time around. Eggle is still brooding in front of the Mainith Shrine and we decide to go to him. Are we going to kill Eggle? Well, if he's willing to listen to reason, then perhaps not. And so we set out for it. This is when the zone is sort of unlocked for us. We're able to get to the bottom of these quests here. We have to use the verification thing on the four things to make access to the Shrine of Maneth. According to a very quick cutscene, these verification devices are activated by Fiora's body herself. And when we talk about Fiora's body, we have a gratuitous body shot depending on the transmog, her, her skinny torso and her Chest. Finally, we go through the zone. I don't know about you, Nate, but I slayed everything in my path, hoovering up red exclamation points like I'm playing fucking Pac-Man. Yeah, this was, there's a lot of backtracking, a lot of circling around to get everything I needed to finish these quests. This, this zone also kind of reads very similar to other Makana zones in its art and aesthetic, and it doesn't feel very, like, homey to me you know where people would live and relax because there's this giant radiating orange hexagon on the horizon that like light leaks everywhere you go and it's kind of oppressive in its brightness i'm reminded of an episode of seinfeld where kramer had a giant chicken sign outside his window that was driving him insane what's going on in there what that light oh the red yeah it's a chicken roaster sign it's right across my window can't you shut the shades? They are shut. This zone is densely packed with Mechon enemies here. We find a Lady Maynith statue at basically the center of the hostile area. Strange that it's headless, I thought. As I'm slashing through foes, a Zord face occasionally joins the fight I'm halfway through, which requires me to refocus targets and burn him down as soon as possible. Thankfully, he is very responsive to topple combos. Yeah, every tower I go to to progress this... Uh quest to unlock the main gate the main teleporter the tower manages to somehow aggro every single enemy on it so i'll start fighting a zord face on the main level and mechon from the top floor will start running down mechon from the bottom floor will start coming up reminds me of 
a yet another uh, memory from World of Warcraft, where if you were too low level and you did, you wanted to go to dead mines with your friends, and you approached that big ship at the end, the entire population of that ship would just make a beeline for you because your aggro radius permeated through the floors. Oh my god, really? I'm sure they patched that. Yeah, yeah, that um, you might have been an early adopter for that to happen, but it definitely happened to me. Depending on where you were standing, the you'd get like 30 people just booking it down the uh, top floors of the ship to come kill you. I'm glad you drew the World of Warcraft reference because this felt like a raid, and I don't mean I've got like 10 or 40 of my friends all fighting a black dragon somewhere, but these fights required occasionally very sensitive poles and very controlled engagements because they have big health bars and they take a long time to, to, to come down. There are elites scattered around here that are exceptionally dangerous and you want to be properly prepared to, to fight them. And so I found myself being very, very particular with the fights I was taking as I was cruising through the zone. Definitely. Those elites are not tucked into their usual, like small corners. They're just patrolling openly along the walkways you need to traverse to get to your objectives. I'm a little unhappy with Sharla and my party at this point. Uh, on my way, while I'm fighting one of these Zord faces, Sharla decides to sleep dart a chicken-style mechon on the lower level of the platform I'm fighting the Zord face on. After the sleep dart wears off, I can see it run around in circles three times, then its nearby squad and all other squads in its path toward me all join the fight. I am in combat for the next 12 minutes, precariously picking off a crowded room of mechons and survive. It sounds like you had the same experience I did with uh, aggro chaining. Charla started it though. She aggroed, she sleep darted someone that was not aggressive to me at the time. She, she's becoming just as suicidal in your game as she is in mine. So true. We have a side quest here from our uh, automaton back home that uh, wanted us to research the Telethia corpses everywhere because, again, they didn't have time to do this in the last 10,000 years. I'm playing as Ryan. Ryan is now the head researcher on all things Telethia. Oh, good for him. Yeah, big brain Ryan. He, uh, he's going to get his degree in Telethia. He's going to make something of himself. He's going to get the girl. So um, we find out that the smaller xenomorphic-like Telethia that I referenced earlier, they are known as the Phoenix Telethia. Mm. The bigger Hydra-like Telethia are the Gigas or Gigas uh, Telethia. Do you have a Earthbound sound effect to throw in there? I sure do. Another Zord face fight, another Mechon squad aggros, and this time Fiora dies, and the Zord face and the other Mechons are body blocking me from resurrecting her because we're fighting on a narrow catwalk. Uh, my other teammate dies, and I'm afraid I'm going to game over again. I've been game overing a lot as I've been cruising through this zone. What do I do, Nate? I marshal up all of my courage and cut through them, resurrect Fiora, and survive the fight. Next war story. I fight Wise Grimmery, a large beetle-like mechon. He game overs me. He game overs me again. I'm getting a lot of game overs here. I'm putting a moratorium on fighting elites in Agnaratha. Fuck that. I go back and I kill them all one by one. But Wise Grimmery is the hardest, though. Um, he's got this spike passive on him where you deal. he deals damage back to you and you'll damage to him. Do you want to know how I defeated him? I want to know, and then I will tell you how I defeated him. I craft tier 5 spike resist gems, and I destroy him. This is the first time in the entire game I have made 
purpose-built gems for a particular encounter. That sounds like an amazing idea that I love and wish that I had thought of. What did you do? Well, we have the answer to what I did if we go back to our episode on Galhad Fortress. Do you remember? Oh, yes. You kited him around. Yes. I made a party of all ranged people featuring Sharla, Nopon Guy, <laughs> and uh, Melia. And I just run around in circles the entire time. It wasn't easy because there wasn't as big of a battlefield this time, but it eventually did work. So I am a cheater. I am a shame. I've exploited this game. I, I did not use the correct tools, the spike resist gems. But now that you mention it, Mechon always have spikes on them one way or another. If you like knock them down or you play the game correctly, they develop spikes. So. Uh, that's a good idea. I might look into those gems. Did you need to stack the gems or does one gem level five make it sufficient? I didn't stack them because I couldn't, I didn't have enough raw materials to get that many okay. spike resist. If I remember properly, I'm not going to look this up, but if I remember properly, spike resist level five was 30% and that was enough. 30% isn't selling very much, but it was enough to help me uh, get through the fight. Gotcha. I'll, I'll have to think of that next time I find myself in one of these predicaments. Do you have any other questing war stories? I don't have questing war stories, just about the area. Um, the interesting thing about that main statue with the missing head is, was this like battle damage from the war with Bionis, or was this done in protest? Were people revolting against the religion of Lady Maneth? I don't know, but I'm going to go with it was battle damage and no one ever bothered to fix it. Again, over 10,000 years. It's not very pious of you to just leave a statue broken for that long instead of trying to fix it. Another thing I uh, do notice is that Maynith shares a very Vanilla-like trait in that she has a bit of thickness with two C's, if you get what I'm throwing out there. I do. Similar to the Hyantia, her clothes have the uh, booby window, as it's called, in her attire, where everything else is clothed except you get a nice little oval there to catch some cleavage, but Maynith has the additional panty window where her dress flowingly covers all of her legs except there's a cutout hole so that you can see a nice little shot of her, uh, what pair of panties she was wearing when they did this artist rendition. Oh my god, you're right about that. I forgot about that. Jesus. I can indeed confirm that these characters were designed in glorious Nihon. The place where we witness Egil speak to the images Maynith is on the other side of the teleporter. The place where the teleporter is is called the Worship Terrace. So this is apparently where all of the Machina would get together and worship Maynith. In our previous episode, we had talked about the idea that there is a religion related to Maynith. And soon enough here, we will... Ref hear her referred to as a god so there's there's some themes here that go beyond Maynith is very humble in her presentation of herself as just a soul and a person and somebody with ideas and desires um, there is a very different perspective that her people have on her represented in this zone and the naming of areas mm-hmm uh, when you complete the panel's quest, the administrative panel rewards you with a cloister key. He says, enjoying the view is mandatory. 
Mm. You take the lift to the observation doors outside and you get to the secret area. It's called the Seven Sage Cloister. Spectacular views of the Mainith Shrine and the greater capital area. And cloister is a reference to either an area in a monastery or a convent. And I'll just say this is very cloister-esque because it is typically a very specific architectural design that is placed within the uh, monastery or convent, which is a open area surrounded by walls with columned outstretchings to provide covering for people going from building to building. So if it's raining out, you aren't getting rained on, but you can still witness a general courtyard at the center of the monastery buildings that are joined together. And the shrine is very cathedral-like. If you look at it, it has these rows of like buttresses, like scaffolding, like um, arced, they fucking call them, arches that kind of line the... Uh, the extent of the shrine and that kind of feels like a big hallowed area like you might feel in a, when you're at a cathedral or a basilica. As we've been questing, we've been checking off those four activation, deactivation devices. We go to the hollow room to do whatever happens after turning those pylons off or on at the worship terrace. And then my next note is, oh my god, I'm ready. Here we go. We go to that worship terrace. Uh, we are preparing to confront Eggle and Jadeface is back. Jadeface attacks. Look out! It's him! Shulk dodges without a vision and comments as such saying, that's the second time I've predicted an attack without the Monado showing me. Gadult responds in kind saying that... Shulk's mastery of the Monado is astonishing. So Shulk doesn't even need to receive visions now to be warned that he's under imminent threat. I would like to inform the gameplay writers that I am ready for a diegetic addition of this Shulk mechanic into the game where I also don't need to watch a eight second cutscene every time I am under imminent threat. That sounds pretty nice. Uh, as usual, Charlotte struggles to understand why Gadol is fighting us. Ryan pushes back on Gadol, telling him, kind of shaming him into uh, not attacking. But we fight him anyways. This is a boss fight between, not Jadeface, Gadol. Gadol. The mob's name is Gadol, not Jadeface. First thing he does is he backhand bitch slaps my entire party, who are immediately dazed. He's got some neat abilities. He's got that linear laser that we saw at the top of... Makana's field, but yeah, okay, it's linear, but there's no dodging it. He's always perfectly pointed at his target, even as he's taken a knee to fire, like he's always spinning along with your target. Good luck dodging that. He's got another ability, laser bullet. He leaps into the air and sprays a volley of arcing blue beams, or maybe they're tiny missiles with blue rocket trails. One quarter through his health bar, we take a break. Somehow Gattle managed to become even more of an annoying fight than last time when I bitched about him. I'm watching an eight second intermission every 15 seconds. And that seriously, I actually counted that out. I'm not just making this up. And that intermission is a vision of my characters dying. And then instantly hearing the glass shattering sound effect after the interruption is over because it turns out they'll be fine. So I watch a little cutscene of them dying and then I do like one little thing like step to the right or somebody throws a heel and it says, oh, never mind. So Sharla is the target of his beam every single time. So for the previous cutscene saying that he's holding back, he is 
going fucking hard on her now. So we managed to piss him off to some degree on that level. But um, this is something about this boss fight and generally all of the elites in this zone. I'm two levels over most everything I'm fighting. I'm wearing good gear. I've got HP gems at roughly my characters are sitting around 5,500, 6,000. And Ryan's at 9,999. And yet I'm cutscene every time he uses this stupid ass ability and i'm loathing this mechanic at this point (laughs) i don't want to see my character fake die every two seconds and um on shulk's end he's also missing like 50 percent of his attacks and i have no idea why i don't know maybe i need like hit plus gems or something but again i'm two levels over him moderately well geared and gemmed and so this fight just feels tedious to me i'm not sure what the hell's going on and i'm not sure why this was the case throughout multiple elite fights in this zone too of why i was hearing a lot of the from not hitting things and i was like what what is this what is happening that's strange that wasn't my experience was he a difficult fight for you he was a difficult fight but not because i was missing but because the damage race was pretty intense it's just like it seems like the difficulty of this game has spiked a lot at the end um no pun intended (laughs) but um the game was really easy for the longest time and then it's within just the last like two or three chapters it's been ramping hard and that's fine i don't mind a challenging game but now i'm kind of confronted with all of these mechanics that i've never given two shits of because the game was insulting me with how not hard it was they're kind of all being dropped into my lap and to the point where i forgot about spike defense gems like like you didn't fight intermission the party chastises godot for attempting to harm charla to which he warms up his shoulder cannons and fires a volley to everyone but charla they notice that he keeps missing he can't hit charla and so they they kind of draw on the thread that there's something holding him back fewer recognizes this and lady made takes over speaking with her voice now you're just like i was you can remember who you are godot please don't you remember me? It's Charla! Wither and die as all life on Bionis will! She walks to the center of the room slowly, powerfully, like when Keanu became one with the Matrix. She tells Charla that Godot's heart is still in there, that it's possible to break Egil's spell on him. Fiora just needs some time to do it. I will break the curse that allows Egil to control the faces. I need you to buy me some time. We have to buy her time to cast her special spell. Phase two is on! He calls ads, I killed him incrementally and burned down his health bar properly. This was a harder fight than I thought it would be. When the battle's over, or when the next intermission happens, I guess we don't know in the moment, Fiora radiates a red energy from her soul transfer crystal and begins to float. It blasts Jade Face, he crumples to the ground, and it explodes and spits out Godot. Um, he does the whole forgive me blah 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 thing. Yeah, so as Godot crumples to the floor, like you said, uh, he is picked up and held in the arms of the love of his life for the first time in months maybe even longer we don't know she says she's so glad to finally have him back gadult responds egil wished to end the cycle of suffering i realized something egil once wished only to break the circle of suffering he is consumed with vengeance bro 
You have no relationship etiquette. <laughs> she just told you that she's so glad to have you back, and you're doing lore dumps right now. He forgot that that uh, Maynith put this broke the spell on him. He's still spouting uh, sycophantic nonsense. Exactly. I'm gonna try this when uh, my wife gets home from a six month deployment at the dock. She's gonna race to me, leap into my arms, and I'll say, Brandon, he desperately wants to forgive your student loans. But the PPP, they worry about the tax burden on Hank the HVAC guy. Drive home now. File for debt relief. And I'm going to see how she responds. Absolutely brilliant, Nate. We can't wait to hear how that goes. Yeah, that that's exactly what happened in this scene is she embraced him as a lover and he is still just stuck in anti-mechon save the world bullshit it does make a minor connection to ryan though we're going to come back for you actually it's it's charlotte that says we're coming back for you the two ryan and Godot have a i'm not going to call it a moment but a brief understanding drink it you must be thirsty thanks don't go dying on us after we take egil down we'll get you looked at what's your name ryan do me a favor, Ryan. Take care of Sharla. As Ryan walks away, he throws a G-Dog, a Mechon Do, with some mean Joe Green vibes and tells him to hang in there. Want my Coke? No, no. Really, you can have it. Okay. Thanks. That's the way Ryan says that he knows a good doctor. Pauses. A Machina one. Not the one standing right next to you. The medic. The person who specializes in treating injured ones on the battlefield. Oh, that went over my head. He doesn't know her. The the love of his life who is a fucking medic. He needs to wait to get back to the actual doctor and suffer in defeat there. I don't know. Ryan doesn't intend it, but I'm picking up a little shade of like... You know, hey, stay away from Charla. We'll, we'll we'll get you patched up eventually, but not right now. That's where I officially concluded that chapter 13 or 14 or whatever we're, the hell we're on right now is officially the Ryan Stole Your Girl chapter. Yeah, it's unfolding right before us. Or maybe they all become a thruple. Who knows? Oh my god. We cut back to the Battle of Sword Valley Part 2. It's a brief conversation, this last maybe 20 seconds, between Elvis and Callion. Kicking ass and looking cool. Yes. Wind blowing through his fur vest thing. Whatever. Elvis says, I have an unpleasant feeling. Callion says, well, what is it? The Mechon are abandoning the fight. But why? Asks Callion. Elvis feels that Shulk and company are in grave danger. Mechonis is awakening and requests use of, an, of a fighter, a, a Havris. Uh, for his own purposes, fade back to Agnarotha. This is where I have we ascend the Maynith Cloister, uh, which is m more religious symbolism in her honor. We race up the steps to Egil. When we get there, firstly, it's a conversation between Egil and Venea. Venea reasons with him. Egil obviously declines. He cares not for life or death. Until the cries of the innocent are silenced, I will work towards no other end. The rest of the groups arrive, and he says, You've never seen me outside of my face. Yaldabaoth. You have never seen me outside my face, Yaldabaoth. 
That's another Jewish mysticism reference, if I'm correct. I don't know exactly what the reference is. I just know that I've heard it before. I can lay it on you. Um, yes, Yaldabaoth. This word means demiurge, which is a kind of false god or a deity that is less creator and more caretaker of the creator's creations. This is the first named gear that didn't have the word face named gear. This is the first faced mechon that has a proper name that doesn't have the word face in its proper name. Um, so I wonder why this gear is so special. Because he does power over all over mechons, I guess. We did get gold face earlier in the game, though. Yes. But now we have a proper name for it, for sure. Yaldabaoth. Very Xenogears. This is the strongest connection to the Jewish Gnosticism that we saw in Xenogears then, I think, ever in the entire game, save for the Zohar adjacent pendant on Elvis's neck. And the monad of Monado. I'm sure that you can find a list of 20 things, but I'm just saying that right now. This is more on the nose than ever, it seems like to me, with the exception of the iconography of the giant godly panel. Is Egil picking a cool name that he doesn't know the definition of, or is he self-identifying as a false god? Good question. I don't know. Shulk has a question for Egil. Why send Mechon to attack people of Bionis? Holy smokes, this is very Xenogearsy too. Well, are you familiar with starvation tactics? And then they explain it to us. Um, it is a, it is, you know, you surround people and you starve them out and they just kind of die and devour each other. I guess that's the best method to ensure victory. I'm not so sure that's true, um, but Ego says he's got no resentment or hatred of the denizens of Bionis. It's simply a matter of depleting Bionis's energy. Egil wants to create death on Bionis as a means to return ether energy to Bionis and help it awaken this smacks of Xenogears as a means to like recombine with Deus at the end of the game to fulfill the um the M plan that Krellian's trying to you know become do the apotheosis thing about but it also smacks of Final Fantasy 9 as well with like with Kuja's mission do you remember what Kuja was up to in Final Fantasy 9? I don't remember okay so his his whole plan this is the thing you discover at the end of this three and all that sort of revelation tempo is he was creating an army of black mages black mage automatons and other weapons of war including summons to create death on the planet because death on the home world of final fantasy 9 accelerates the interaction of gaia energy between gaia and terra and terra is like this vampiric shadow planet of the original and so he's facilitating the soul transfer energy between the two planets and it's kind of feeling the same here but instead of two planets it's life force returning to god returning to the land returning to the planet so to speak i had a different interpretation of this than you i think so let me go through mine and tell me if it's different or if we're saying the same thing sure. so when you said it you said that he's trying to kill everybody to return the ether to bionis so that it awakens that's what I just heard from you, right? Yes. My interpretation of what he was saying is that the Bionis gave birth to everybody to cultivate, gather, increase ether so that when it awakens, which in inevitably will do the bionis itself will feed on the ether of all living beings for sustenance so egil's goal is to kill everything before the awakening so that when it wakes up it starves oh right okay i do remember that being like the point of the, his conversation but i thought that i guess it isn't very clear what happens to ether energy when a life form on bionis dies does it go back does it reintegrate into the titan or is it like released and never comes back because it sounds like it's a matter of attrition, but... I have an answer for you, which answers one of our earliest questions. Oh, please, because I don't fucking know anything. 
the ether does not return to the bionis if a mechon eats it. Hmm. Chapter two. We didn't know why eat the Homs. That makes great sense. Because if you just kill people outright, that ether will return to Bionis. But if you kill them and remove them from the equation, then that ether isn't going back. So I think we, we've reached a consensus. We are not at odds with our theories here. It's fine. I am extremely confused about all of this anyways. <laughs> I appreciate your being here with me for the steerage. It's awesome really really helpful iron sharpens iron something like that yes please uh and i completely agree we are crossing into xenogears deus territory here all of mankind was created to be parts for god we are in that same space here we've talked about the crossover to xenogears but we've also had theories that bionis itself is a kind of like deus planet consuming intergalactic entity echoing that same existence good god what happens next we fight we fight Eigel on foot on foot he commits the classic mumkar mistake of fighting on foot while possessing a giant robot just feet away from you i don't remember much of this fight i remember the jade face fight so much more distinctly it's because this one was much easier mm. both fights tap into my mmo instinct of kill the ads because in both, the bosses summon various adds. But in this case, it's just more efficient to just kill the boss. Because if you kill the adds, they just resummon them immediately. But if you don't kill them, they don't summon additional adds. So just ignore them. I don't have much else to say about this particular fight. I can keep her moving. That, that's pretty much it. There's nothing special about this fight. Nothing special about you, Eggle. You heard it from us. Get in your giant god machine. We know what's going on here. Okay, so after the fight, cutscene, obviously, melodramatic cutscene, Shulk races forward and pierces his shoulder. And Egil screams and says, how can this happen even without Apocrypha? Recall that Apocrypha is that magical red energy that he wielded that turned off the Monado. And Shulk says, you know why this is happening without Apocrypha. It's because the power of will to protect my own. Yeah, this the Apocrypha thing, I thought we solved that like three chapters ago, but we will solve it again. Shulk says it's <laughs> it's with sheer positive vibes. And by playing Xenogears, again, we've learned that science is never a match for feelings. If you remember uh, the giant uh, Billy Dad gun gear and the power of good feelings owning the shit out of Father Stein's super gear, uh, it's been a while, but I think that's a correct assessment of what happened. Like, yes. th there was all sorts of science going on, but then like strong will and good feelings overcame all of it. You shot his father out of a gun that is supposed to kill the pilot it's ridiculous and he survives like they lay that premise down they do the whole sacrifice thing <laughs> and he's in the next scene and it was because of love that it worked yeah not, not because of superior technology i ain't ready to die yet although i am ready to die yet you're crazy jesse it just reminds me of that there's all the the science set up and then yeah but we really 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 want to win so it doesn't work bro vinea says she wants this fighting to stop and this makes Egil feel even more isolated in his mission. He se he seems more like a singular force in in contrary to the wishes of his sister, his dad, and the other refugees on the fallen arm. Egil one-handed grips Shulk's face like a fucking basketball and says, Your blade did not cut deep enough. We've heard this phrase before. Your blade. It did not cut deep enough. Where did we hear it? <gasps> 
Nate. Nate, the Touch the Monado scene where we rapidly went through a whole bunch of scenes, the very, very last one was someone saying, your blade, it did not cut deep enough. Oh, shit. This moment we heard about in chapter one. Chapter one. So that flies in the face of Shulk changing reality because he still was brought to this moment. Also, it's interesting to note that Shulk stabbed him in the same place that Bayana stabbed Mechanus. Interesting. That is interesting. Didn't shear off an arm, though. That would have been fucking great, though. Ego leaps into Yaldabaoth, and we fight him in Yaldabaoth. In true faced Mechon fashion, the dialogue is fine in a cutscene, but turns into absolute garbage when you're in combat against this thing. So I can't tell what the hell he's saying this entire fight. So if there's any lore drops you got from this, Tyler, please inform me. But it reminds me of the original Bane audio from The Dark Knight Rises, where uh, Tom Hardy had to redub the entire movie three months before the theatrical release because it was so bad. Now what's the next step of your master plan? Crashing this fight. I, um, no, I don't have any lore dumps because I am up to my neck in lore dumps and I just want this fight to be over. Sure. And I had a feeling at the beginning that this, this was going to be an unwinnable fight and I was right. Mm-hmm. Halfway into the fight, we, uh, I'm kicking his ass. I'm, his health is dropping big time. But then we all get mega owned by electricity yes love is not stronger than electricity unless you're Godot. <laughs> hey spoilers so Egil is ready to we're all we're all stunned by the electricity blast we're taken out of the boss fight proper and put back in a cutscene and Egil is ready to deliver the final blow to shulk no zanza Egil calls shulk zanza prepare to die What the fuck's going on, Tyler? Everything equals everything. Yeah, so Fioraneth, as I'm just going to call her, because she's like merged or like operating both consciousnesses at once, jumps in the way, releases all of her red light energies. They're like thick and seemingly tangible now, not just like a a wave, but actual beams are protruding out from her. And uh, Egil finally forsakes Maneth as he feels she has forsaken all the mortals who died in her name. He says, gods can never exist alongside mortals. So to kind of answer my own question from earlier, I think Yaldabaoth is an intentional kind of self-report of being like an anti-god. Oh, sure. Okay. Because he has contempt for the proper god. Mm-hmm. Mm. Good pull. Oh, he's also done with Vinaya. Vinaya, you're nothing more than a traitor, so marginalize her as well. Uh, Ego's getting increasingly extreme, isolated. He's losing his the people that support him, and um, the ideology that he is expressing is like very singular. It's all a coalescing around him and his own only his will and whatever he wants to do with it yeah he he is isolated because he is attached to the opinions of the dead over the opinions of the living he is consumed by the people that he has lost he wants to become the soul of mechanis to supplant maneth herself because he feels that she has failed him so in Whatever fashion that is, I don't know if this is something that was originally the design of Mechanis or if Egil developed this. 
Goldface or Yaldabaoth enters the core. He goes beyond the um, stained glass window type structure we commented on earlier. He gets absorbed into it. He equips his mechon with even more unintelligible shit on the body. And that that shit all links into even more shit. And it seems like he's connected directly into Mechonis itself. He says he's he's now going to become the soul of Mechonis. Mechonis, it is I, Egil, I, your devoted servant, offer my body and mind to replace Maynath as your new soul. Yeah, and so he does. Yep, and as he is ascending, uh, the rest of the party can feel the, the ground beneath them shake. They can... Uh, they postulate that the city is going to come down on top of them, that there's nothing they can do to avoid that. Uh, Ryan wonders where do they even run to? Because, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm able to teleport all over wherever I want, but I'm guessing that is not a story element that they are capable of. So they're stuck hoofing it. And, um, Charlotte stays. She can't find Gadolt, but she wants to. She's holding back. She needs to make good on her promise. And Ryan slaps her in the face. And she <laughs> says, All right, I'll go. All right, I'll go. We have to sacrifice him. Well, Ryan has good reasoning, or at least uh, good. I don't know what the word is. Like mature. Like look out for yourself reasoning. He says that Gedol was a soldier and he would have seemingly have saw seen the signs, would have been able to protect himself and get out. All of this is a hundred percent not true because we kicked the shit out of him and he was crumpled onto the floor and he may have not had the faculties to escape, but he's currently gone from his previous location. So that is what Ryan is saying is going on. Mm-hmm. The whole place is coming down. Explosions ring out. White light is consuming all of Agnaratha and seemingly going to consume the party when Gettel and his Mechon swoosh in to provide cover. He says that he's glad he could keep his promise. The Thruple request has been denied. <laughs> yes. The dream is lost. And so is our chapter. And so is Godot. That's where it abruptly ends. We can assume that Alva swoops in with his fighter and saves everybody, but we don't see it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm... I did not think of that, but you're you're on the ball on that one. What a wild ride. This has been, we've had so much set up. We've had so many visions, setting so many things up. And here we are knocking the pins down. And some of it's pretty great. This is, was a extremely consequential chapter with some answers. Even the answers we get have like, have enigmas inside of them as well. And so while we do get some resolutions on some things, we're still scratching your head on a lot of other things. Pretty good chapter. Can't imagine where we're headed next. Probably not in Probably heading back to, I don't know, picking up the pieces of uh, everything we understood back at the capital, perhaps. The other capital. I'll come off. The main thing we'll have to see is, like, Mechonis mobile active moving now. Mm-hmm. That would make Bionis a sitting duck. Here's another quick thing I'm going to throw in there that I just thought of. Previously, the High Antia, way earlier in the game when we first met them and we were talking to the Emperor and things like that, they right then and there said that if the Bionis awakens, everybody dies. That's also a fact that Ryan himself knew that 
if the Bionis wakes up, they're all screwed, right? So there was a time when the Bionis is walking around being Bionis and races and peoples are also living on it because the fight is the final thing that happened and Zanza, Hyantia, the cooperation with Makanas and the Machina people, these two Titan entities are existing, living, moving in seemingly good health while their denizens are doing the same. So something's not adding up for me on why would somebody as basic as Rhine fear his death if the Titan awakens? I think that was mentioned when we first entered the third lung on Bionis, that Rhine was like, oh shit, this thing can't be alive. This thing can't wake up because we're screwed. So the revelation that Egil just gave us is to some degree embedded in their consciousness, but I'm having trouble placing what what did life on Bionis look like prior to the slumber, so to speak. I might be pulling on too many neurons than we have at this stage in the evening, <laughs> even for myself. Yeah. This episode feels like a catharsis. Yeah, definitely. I think they they did deliver on one thing for you that you've been asking for, Tyler. What's that? We're no longer going to be like strangled by visions anymore. Shulk is just going to dynamically develop his senses and ability to react and adjust on the fly. So when we were calling it Xenovision's Vision Quest Division of Edition, it seems like we're going to be moving away from that, and I hope that that delivers for you. Yes, I think so, with the exception of the visions we get when we're picking up blue dots. Oh, right. And threats of doom. Threats of murder. Threats of doom. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been a production of Hero with a Thousand Potions, recorded on September 6th or 7th, 2022. We have an email, Hero with a Thousand Potions at gmail.com. That's one zero 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 potions. And we're also on Discord via a link that you can find on our RSS feed. Summon Flare! Summon Copy! Summon Aqua! At the end, do we usually like do a I've been Tyler and this is Nate or. <laughs> Oh my god, you're right. Oh my god, I don't have either of those. Oh my god, really? Oh my god, you're right about that. Good god, what happens next? Oh my god. Arc. Uh, I crushed everything. Uh, creating scenarios for me to convince. I can't talk through my notes today. I know the feeling. The, the big face at the end of the game. Uh, please cut this because it's making me sound terrible at memory. <laughs> I don't know if you know what that means. <laughs> that's that's Japanese for Japan, right? Yes, yes. Oh, no, ni- Nippon. It, it's both. Nihon, Nippon. It's Nihon, both. Nippon. Okay. But uh, okay. yeah, you can you can cut that little part at the end. Just leave it at glorious Nihon, and then we move on. <laughs> Am I going out of order? No, no, no. You're fine. Okay. Godot leaps in the way, absorbs the blow, wait, and wait, sacrifices wait. it. What? Uh, no, no. Yeah, you. Are, that is way out of order. Yeah, and get all. Let's see what my notes. If there's anything important. If I'm moving too fast, tell me to hold up. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Hey Tyler, slimmer, sim, simmer down, huh? Oh Jesus!